Good evening, LCM. It's Thursday, August 18th, and the title of tonight's message is Be Afraid. We were moved by our last few meetings together and are genuinely blessed by the way this body is learning to fight as one singular unit. This house has always been a bit of an army barrack, a place where men are trained for war, and it always will be that kind of place. This is our holy and godly design. You, the leading men of LCM, the leading men of this house, you are what carries on this kind of military culture. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10.6, we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Your adherence, LCM, to biblical truths and everyday actions, your conviction to stand on the word of God is what enables us as a collective body to draw a line of distinction in the sand. We will advance the will of God in every area. Can somebody say amen? amen? We will advance the will of God in every area and our complete obedience is what will call others to the same standard we now live in. Amen, church, family. A great revelation has been entrusted to us. Will you say amen to that? Amen. Do you believe that? Yeah. Hallelujah. We know that our current work will affect the outcome of generational ministries and the course of nations. Yeah. Amen. We are in a season of re-consecrating ourselves to work and eliminating all subversive and distracting influences. To see this vision completed, it will require that we pay full price, ultimate price, on the altar of God through our daily crucifixion. Come on. This crucifixion process Crucifixion process, excuse me, includes facing past, present, and future fears. This process of crucifixion includes facing the honest state of affairs in the same manner that Zerubbabel did in Ezra 5. Oh, come on. Recognizing that he neglected the work of God. I'm sorry. Neglecting, excuse me, I'm so sorry. Recognizing that he had neglected the work of God, but could now stand up and get back yeah. to work, saints. So we are encouraged by mountains that seem to be immovable for 17 or 18 years, but can now be leveled in four faithful years. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. Saints, I suspect we are not the only ones with rising faith. See, we are seeing enemies that have been around forever. But as we are standing together, we're watching new progress. I've known most of you from the beginning. I'm watching you make that new progress. So our endeavor tonight is to transmit what the Lord has impacted us with. He has spoken to us. His voice has been comforting. It has been strengthening. And it has been impactful. So we intend to transfer the fullness of that impact to you. As we begin, we're going to start with a few familiar passages written by David. To start with is Psalm 138, verse 6 through 8. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Saints, I just want to start out and say, praise God that he regards the lowly. Because the truth is, that is us. We are those of little account, but he has taken his attention and placed it upon us. And that is all that truly has made us special. Verse 7. It says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretched out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. 
this certainly has not been a trouble-free season, has it, Saints? Nope. Filled with all kinds of stomach bugs. But we would have it no other way, amen? In our desperation, Yahweh has gifted us with the power of his right hand, and we are delighting in its effect on us. Come on. These days of toil, labor, and adversity, and supernatural deliverance are producing a greater reliance on him who is enough. El Shaddai, saints. We are experiencing his transformation, and every time we step up to lead, every time that we think it would be easier to be subdued by the trouble, subdued by this number one enemy, our God knows how to work his holy leadership into us, and he's working it with due diligence. Amen? Amen. Verse 8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, it endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Thanks. We are pleased to say that it is the Lord who will fulfill his purpose for us. Does anybody else in the room find that comforting tonight? Oh, yeah. I can tell you, Asad and I find it deeply comforting. It is time that our love for the Lord, our love for his work, and our love for his people match his said, his kindness, his enduring love, his commitment to his purpose. See, David's life had a good deal of what we might call ups and downs in it. But the purpose of God was brought about through his life because he clung to the word of God and clung to the Lord himself. We're going to take a look at another psalm by David and build on this point. So saints, go with us to Psalm 27 verse 1. And as you go there, say, be afraid. It says, O Lord, the king rejoices in your strength. How great is his joy in the victories you give. Has the Lord given you victories, saints? Yes. Has he given you reasons for joy in the house of God tonight? Yes. Amen. Yeah, Remember, they're getting better every time you ask. Yeah, they are. Maybe we should try just one more time. Amen. I said, get down on the, on the, off the stage for just a minute. There might be uncomfortable that you're up there staring yeah. down on them. <laughs> Have you received victories, LCM? Yeah. Amen. See, this is a house that understands what it is to fight to win. We will fight for holiness or die trying. We will fight for one another to see each other reach holiness. Amen. See, this psalm starts out by talking about victories that God has given us. We did not create those victories any more than David created the victories. God gave them, but we got to participate in them together. Amen. So guys, remember, the author is King David. He is saying that he rejoices in the Lord's strength. What a thing it is to know and rely upon the strength of God. Amen? Yeah. Come on. He goes on to say that the victories he enjoyed and by extension that his kingdom enjoyed came from Yahweh. Yeah. So as we pick up in verse 2, not just the king, but by extension his whole kingdom enjoyed this. You have granted the desire of his heart and have not withheld the request of his lips. You welcomed him with rich blessings and placed a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked you for life and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. Through the victories you gave, his glory is great. You have bestowed on him splendor and majesty. Surely you have granted him eternal blessing and made him glad. Saints, are there a lot of good things in that list? Did you notice that every one of the good things on the list were either given, bestowed, or granted by God? See, this righteous fruit on the tree, if you will, it came from the life of the king. 
came from the life of a king who had received gracious gifts from God. Verse 7 is going to be instructive. It'll show you where all of this stemmed from in the heart of the king. So verse 7, for the king trusts in the Lord through the unfailing love of the Most High. He will not be shaken. Come on, church. There is not a problem, not an obstacle yeah. or enemy, whether within or without, that cannot be overcome if we choose to trust in the unfailing love of Yahweh. Hallelujah. So we say tonight, let your trust rise. Yeah. Let it rise up inside. Come on. And his purpose for you was ordained before you were born. It is time that we look to the Lord who grants strength and victory. Yeah. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Have you considered that you are God's workmanship, guys? Yeah. Have you considered that? Yeah. Amen. Not only are works prepared in advance, but we were designed by a master craftsman to do these works. Yeah. <laughs> Does anybody in this house notice the distinction between understanding works are prepared in advance and that you were created to do those good works? See, if you're not catching me now, you will by the end of tonight. Knowing the reason that God has placed us on this earth and walking in it daily is not only essential, there's a huge difference between recognizing that he put you here and knowing how to walk in it daily. Now me, I'm a bit of a simpleton. I know how to nail two by fours together, maybe two by sixes on a good day. But my friend on the left here, you're right, he happens to be an engineer. And I'm told that some of the best and worst part of an engineer's job, maybe Abambola can tell me, is seeing how people use an intended design. Would you explain that for me? So, have you craftsmen in the room, talking about Rick Lahan, talking about Juan, Elder Charlie, have you craftsmen in the room ever watched a man use a drill like it's a hammer? <laughs> the confession comes forward. One of your first thoughts is, I'm glad that's not my drill he's using, right? So on, on, the, on the other end of the spectrum, when someone executes a design, when it, it brings joy and honor to the man who designed it, when it's fit for purpose, when it's working in its function and purpose, it's glorious, it's beautiful. This is like watching a master craftsman like Elder Charlie or Rick Lahan complete a project by utilizing each tool precisely for its intended use and purpose. Somebody say it's intended purpose. We're going to take a look at the lives of a few men of God and their God-given designs. Every man in this house and every man in all eternity is designed by God to operate in a specific fashion that was ordained by his father. And yet we all know the application of that design is something we must wrestle with. A little bit like a drill being used like a hammer. When men know the word of God, when they know their purpose, and men walk in that purpose, saints, the result is always Powerful, and it's in effect. We're going to begin together in Acts 26 with the Apostle Paul. Amen. Acts 26, verse 9. It says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. 
Come on now. That was, that would take a turn. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. One of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. Have you ever considered, saints, that Paul was an apostle before he was called by Christ? Have you ever considered that? Talk to us. Neither, neither did I. He was sent with authority on a special mission, a special commission, and he presented his message with great boldness, even to foreign lands. We have a slide for you to put this, into, put this together. So if you look over on the screen with me, apostle, many of you know, means one who is sent, but specifically with a special message or commission. John 13, 16 has the word apostle in it. You just may not have known it. Neither is one who is sent, i.e. apostle in Greek, greater than the one who sent him. Specifically, an apostle is sent out by churches or by governing bodies and communities on special errands, and they're called apostles because of the function that they play. See, Paul had a godly design from birth. From the time he was in his mother's womb, he was meant to carry a message. He was meant to travel to foreign cities. He was meant to pursue things in a ravenous fashion to make sure a very specific message got out. This design, however, was being utilized in all the wrong ways and in all the wrong areas. Before having an encounter with Christ, he operated much in the same way that he would after Christ. To be clear, when he operated in his design, it was powerful, regardless of whether or not it was sinful. Acts 8.3 says, but Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them into prison. See, Paul was designed by God to be an apostle. Consider the ridiculous idea of working to reform a man like Paul by telling him, it is not good for you to be so bold, Assad. Don't you go to those foreign cities. Don't you go into foreign cities and confront people. That's not your culture. You don't know what you're doing. See, it's a ridiculous concept. It does sound ridiculous. But what Paul needed was the crucifixion of his wrong application. Come on, somebody. He needed the consecration of his godly design so it could be applied to the work of God. Consider Romans 1, 1 through 2. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So Paul clearly understood later in his life that he was set apart for a purpose, much like you are. And that purpose was to carry the gospel that was promised in advance. I wonder how he knew to write Ephesians 2.10 that we read earlier. He experienced it, saints. <laughs> We're going back to David now. Are you ready? We're going to revisit a very particular moment in David's life. Before we do, it is important that you understand the context. David has gone from being a shepherd in his father's house, a very real, literal sheep on the backside of sheep, so to speak, to the shepherd of all Israel. Psalm 78 verse 72 speaks to this. 
So David shepherded them with integrity of heart and with skillfulness of hands, he led them. See, David knows what it is to be on the run from sinful soul. He knows what it is to have his own son betray him and survive that whole ordeal. David is not unaccustomed to difficulty or repentance or triumph. Psalm 21 verses 1 through 7 that we read earlier attest to this fact. As we pick up together in 1 Chronicles 21, David is at the height of his reign. He is getting older at this point, and nearly every adversary has been put underfoot. And notice I said the words, nearly every adversary. So 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1 says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, Go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan. Then report to me so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied, May the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. May the Lord the king, may the Lord the king, I'm sorry, my Lord the king, are they not all the Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? The king's word, however, overruled Joab. So Joab left and went throughout Israel and then came back to Jerusalem. So clearly, you know, this was sinful. Yep. Anytime Joab is pleading for you not to be faithless, you should know that you are in serious error. What you may not remember is that David is a shepherd and shepherds count their sheep regularly. So Ezra's writing, of, Ezra's writing in Chronicles wants you to understand that it was Satan utilizing David's godly design to his own end. It had a powerful effect because David is supposed to act as a shepherd, but only in the consecrated way that the Lord intended. The result of David's design in action produced a plague of the destroying angel that wiped out over 70,000 Israelites. Come on, let's just engage with that for a second. David is a shepherd who counts his sheep regularly. I mean, we have parents in this house who have children. Imagine losing one child. Imagine being out at a park or the mall and losing one child. How frantic we would be. He has 70,000 Israelites who perished as a result of his sin. Are you beginning to understand the seriousness of our purpose, saints? Husbands, wives, singles, God, your God has given you a design that is powerful, yes. no matter how it is used. Let's fast forward in the story. Picking up in verse 17 of the same chapter, David said to God, was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted? I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. These are but sheep, he said. See, lest you think we're overextending the shepherd analogy, his own words to God are, they're sheep. See, what have they done, O my Lord God? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. Do not let this plague remain on your people. Then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. See, this evening we do not have time to teach you about John 10 and the good shepherd. But just to give you a hint, he's called the son of David for a reason. This is the godly design of David back into action for the kingdom of God. He is taking responsibility for the sheep. 
He's laying his own life down to see them saved. Man, what it is when a man of God begins to realize that for which he was born. The things prepared in advance, I mean those ambiguous things that you can't number, well, they're no longer ambiguous things. Instead, they become divine deeds that are right in front of your eyes. You understand, I was made, I was born, I was prepared for this purpose that I can see now, and I will not let it pass me by. David is speaking with the master craftsman himself. And he says, was it not I? They are but sheep. David has come to grips with the fact that he is the shepherd. And the sheep need his design as God intended it to be used. Pick up in verse 22 with us. Verse 22 says, David said to him, let me have the sight of your threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague of the people may be stopped. Sell it to me at the full price. David will not be denied now that he can see the way his design was used for the sin and misapplication. He now knows the right application and he's moving in power to see it done. Come on. So remember, he's a shepherd, right? He's a shepherd, right? Yes. And he's taking responsibility for the sheep now. He's laying down his life to see them saved. Do you, do you really think that he would let Aruna one of his sheep take the cost of getting this right? Hell no. <laughs> David's reconstruction to the will of God, reconsecration to the will of God in his design produces something incredibly powerful. This is the temple site. So saints, we'd like to help put a few pieces together for you before we continue to build. Because we've been painting a picture but leaving things out on purpose. See, Paul, Paul was an apostle from birth. But he needed a crucifying, consecrating conversion experience. From the time Paul was born again, the same godly design was put to work for God's intended purpose. David. David was at the end of his life and walked with Yahweh. But he was still a shepherd at heart because that was his design. He was manipulated into using his godly design for the purposes of Satan. And saints, don't be naive in this house. That happened to David. It has happened to you. Once he reconsecrated the design to the purpose of God, however, it produced the temple site. Amen. Every one of you have a God-given design in this room. A mezuzah from the Lord that must be consecrated unto God's purpose. However, the truth is that to know your mezuzah and apply your mezuzah requires you to face a gut-wrenching truth. So... Do you know your mezuzah? Well, yes? Listen carefully. Do you know it? Is it the answer no to anybody here? No? Is is there no one who does not know the mezuzah? Okay. You listen carefully too. Listen carefully. The godly design must be consecrated. It is costly and it is crucifying. To operate and it is, to operate and is the furthest thing from easy. For Saul, it cost him a complete reversal. He was, the one, he was the one dealing out the beatings and putting people in prison, saints. To consecrate his God-given design meant he was now the one being beaten and the one being thrown into prison. For David, it meant that in his old age, he would be required to take the judgment of sin upon himself and his family. 
it seemed that his primary concern was the security of the nation after he is gone and his son was ruling. Now, we must bear, now he must bear the consequence of sin, knowing that he will not be around much longer to help. So are you wrestling with this now? You can see clearly their God-given design and the way it was misapplied. What we need to understand in this house is why it was misapplied. It's to do it correctly, to use your God-given design. Well, that's a costly offering. For both of these men, consecrating the God-given design required them to pay a full and complete price of obedience. For both of these men, it produced immeasurably more than could have been expected when they got it right. Many of you know why God put you on the earth, but are often found avoiding the right application of your God-given design because it just costs too much to live out. Many of you don't know your God-given design because it costs too much to acknowledge what God has already shown you to be doing. See, that's a fine way of avoiding our purpose and our accountability to it. So we have a slide for you uh, from this past foundation's content. Can you throw it up, please? Okay, Nehemiah, from New Unger's Dictionary, his name means Jehovah Consoles. Nehemiah 1.4 says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So, the one truth that, we're all, that we were all made, designed, and purposed for the days that we are currently living in, saints, to stand up internally and externally in our mezuzah, it will cost us something. We are a church that has a collective mezuzah to reach the Aswan region. Yeah. Did you guys hear the prophecy today about going out and getting those sheep and bringing them in? Yeah. Come on. And we must get on mission but that only comes through us as individuals coming to grips with the ways our mezuzah has been off mission, little mission drift, because it is easier than committing to the purpose of God. Yeah. Nehemiah was the comfort of God. He was designed by God to fulfill the, that role for Israel, and he paid a terrible price to see that purpose through. The price, is always, the price always is full. Your own crucifixion, saints. Thanks, we're 25 minutes in. Can I be very frank with you this evening? Yes. Will you tolerate a little honesty in the house of God? Yes. See, the short form of my mezuzah is awakening men to the reality of kingdom warfare. Do you know what I've recognized over the last few weeks? That mezuzah shows up in every area of my life, whether it's consecrated or unconsecrated. I began to notice things like I gravitate towards warfare themes. I gravitate towards mob shows or cartel shows where there's an ever-expanding empire and there's loyalty between men and a purpose that they're working to accomplish. You know what that is, though? When it's taking the place of my God-given design, when it is satisfying something other than the right application of it, there's very little difference between it and pornography. It's a desire that God placed in me as a man that's being satiated with a digital version. I began to reflect on the areas of my life at work that I had a sugar substitute for the real thing. That instead of being driven to awaken men to the reality of kingdom warfare, I'm building relationships at work that are to the end of winning my personal war and a profit margin. See, I began to consider 
the extent to which I knew what my godly design was, but I had allowed mission drift. I had allowed easier applications. And since we sit here today, we are not a church that is unaware. We're not a church that is ill-equipped. I can tell you I am personally enriched in every way, personally equipped in every way. But the greatest challenge that faces me on a weekly basis is whether or not I will apply the God-given design to the fullest extent. Because to raise up men for war in this house, it costs you something. It's not as cheap and easy as turning it on a TV. It's not as cheap and easy as finishing a work relationship so that you accomplish what you set out to do. No, it takes toil. It takes weeks of not seeing progress in some of your lives so that in six months we do see progress. It is a terrible price on some days because to accomplish your God-given design, well, many days feel entirely fruitless, although they are fruitful in the kingdom of God. And we're surrounded by cheaper, easier, satiating alternatives that produce nothing in eternity. See, I'm recognizing that for me, to fulfill my God-given design, well, it costs me the things that I fear in every area. My past, my present feeling, and my expectations for the future. So saints, can I be honest with you guys? Just, just talk to you. I've been in this house for a couple of years, maybe four years now. And I've kind of known in the back of my mind what Mama Zuzi is, and I've chosen to ignore it. Kind of like ignorance is bliss. If I don't acknowledge it, I don't have to actually do it. I won't be held accountable for it if I don't really step up to it and say, this is what I'm called to do. And so with the help of my pastor yesterday, I'm, I'm actually coming into the knowledge of what I'm designed to do. So I'm going to read it because I don't really, I haven't really, uh, I've known what it, what it is for a while, but not like this. Prepare God's people for war by setting them in right order in their divisions equipped and ready for battle. So, in spite of this, in spite of, of me not acknowledging what my mezuzah is, God was actually in the background working his workmanship in me for an intended purpose the entire time. So I think back to my days in the U.S. Army, and I came under discipline, discipleship. I was trained. There was structure. I was being prepared. It was being instilled and actually drilled into me. And so... Translate that out of fear. I run from discipleship. I choose to isolate myself oftentimes. In this house, instead of running into discipleship where I know that my pastors are calling me forth to. After 9-11, after I actually was in the military during 9-11. I saw the, 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 the planes hit the World Trade Center in my, in my barracks room. And so I saw the, the military begin to mobilize and the, the change of atmosphere, the seriousness that there was before. Before, I, I was just earning money for college. Now, there was the potential of war, the mobilization going on. I saw that. I participated in that. And so, with respect to my mezuzah, I settled for a lesser version. I oftentimes have an OCD-type mentality with respect to my innate objects. I'll neatly order my closet. I'll set my toiletries in right order. These things that have no ability to cause me any strain, struggle, 
or, or problems putting them together. They don't talk back to me, right? And so it's easier. It's an easier thing to order my closet than to order my home. It's easier to order my toiletries than to order my children or to go on my job and proclaim the gospel and order that. So the godly design in, it is, is in its consecrated form, it costs something, and I didn't want to pay that cost. But I'm telling you right now today, I'm ready to pay the full price like Hallelujah. David did. And so we often gravitate towards the easier option. Don't do what I did. Don't waste time in the house of God. If you don't, Damon, don't waste time like I did. Don't do it. So it costs you the things that you fear. The fear of the past, the fear of your present, and the fear of the future. Saints, we're going to keep moving. But I think you're beginning to get it as Asada sharing with you personally as interaction. You put it on someone else so that it's easier for you to see. You all know that guy that is very controlling about little things because he is incapable of managing the bigger things. So he cares about where details are, what is in order. But this brother was very honest and said he likes ordering the things that don't talk back. Saints, can I tell you how much I empathize with that? Can I tell you how proud I am of Assad for saying that publicly? Yeah. This man is a leader, and he is going to order armies. He's going to stand up and direct men everywhere that he goes by example and by speech. You're watching him stand in his godly design even this evening. The question is, we progress, is will you do the same or will you watch him do it and vicariously participate, feeling satisfied because you saw him do it? See, I think you're beginning to understand what is at stake. And what the Lord has been speaking to us as a body over the last few weeks. I have a slide for you that I would like to take just a minute on. It's called two types of Levites. You should remember Ezekiel 44 verse 15. But the priests who are Levites and descendants of Zadok and who are faithful. It goes on to say are to come near to minister before me with God speaking. See this is a son of Aaron. This is a descendant through Phinehas to Zadok. First Chronicles 6 Three through eight will give you that genealogy. There's another type of Levite. This is Judges 17, 10, 11, and 12. Then Micah said to him, Live with me and be my father and priest, and I'll give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and food. So the Levite agreed to live with him. The passage goes on to say, Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest. See, sadly, this is a descendant of the great man of God, Moses. Levites were purposed by God to be intermediaries and standard bearers. And the truth is they perform this function in any given context, whether the application is righteous or sinful. The Holy Written Word gives us an example of a descendant of Aaron being Zadok. That is forever. Someone say forever. forever. Drawn close to the Lord himself. Forever operating in his godly design. The Holy Written Word of God also gives us the example of a descendant of Moses, an amazing man. But that descendant sold his design out for an easier option. See, he's still claiming to serve the Lord and he's still acting as a priest. But he's doing it outside of God's presence. And the same is true about, uh, about many secular musicians and secular leaders within the church world. I think we've all seen that time and time again. 
men who perform the functions of Levites but do it for shekels and a shirt. The godly design in its consecrated form costs you everything. It costs the full price. It costs your own crucifixion, and that is why we gravitate to applications of our design that feel more immediately rewarding, instantly gratifying, or just simply easier. Both Levites were performing their God-given design. The mezuzahs were discernible, but only one was consecrated. As my brother said, both of their mezuzahs are discernible, but only one is actually consecrated. Only one Levite is actually ministering to the Lord himself in his God-given design, forever on his mezuzah. See, we say no more to cheap and easy alternatives in this house. In this house, we are taking our stand. We will not be satisfied. We will not be satiated. We will not be seduced away from the real application. It is time that our mezuzah gets on mission. Fear of the cost, fear of the crucifixion, fear of the past, fear of the present, or fear of the future will not keep us from rising to the reason for which we were born. We will not let that happen. There is a truth about all of our design. We were all, somebody say all, all. designed to fear. You were designed to fear, and fear comes to us from God himself. Here's what we mean in Malachi 2, 4 through 5. Verse 4 says, And you will know that I have sent you this admonition, so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. So to be a Levite consecrated in the original design requires reverence or literally fear. As Vine's complete expository dictionary puts it, the Hebrew word here used is mora. It's exclusively the fear being before a superior kind of being. Usually it's used to describe the reaction evoked in men by God's mighty works of destruction and sovereignty. Hence, the word represents a very strong fear or terror. Yahweh has called for officers, leading men who can handle the things of God like Levites. And this kind of work calls for fear. So be afraid in the right way. Be afraid in the way God designed you to be. In the fear and awe of the name of God and no other. Amen. So we have a slide for you to develop this concept further. Saints, given that we have a limited time format. We put this together for you to give you an idea of what the law and the prophets speak about fearing God. You can see Abraham in Genesis. In Exodus 18, in the same passage we have been preaching about what it means to select capable men who can be officers, one of their first qualifications is fear of God. Fear of God affects your family. It affects your children's livelihood. It affects your business. It affects your posterity in every single way. Fear and its right application is beautiful. It is godly and is a part of your God-given design. It is a pleasing offering, holy unto the Lord. It produces holy living. It produces bold faith. It produces prosperity and security through the generations. Your fear is a gift from God that is intended to be given back to him and him alone. Amen. Not one of these representative seven examples. Make any allowance whatsoever for fear to be placed anywhere other than the Lord. We'd like to visit Judges 6 with you. We want to take on some of these pseudo applications. 
We want to begin to turn against those pseudo-applications and get our mezuzah on mission. We will learn to rightly use the gift that is the fear of God, that is a part of our godly design. Judges 6, 23. It says this, But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. Shalom, don't be afraid. You are not going to die. This is you getting your mezuzah on mission. Some days, that is good to hear. Isn't that what misplaced fear tells us? You're going to die? <laughs> or that the worst case scenario is definitely the most likely scenario, right? Often. So fear, like every other part of the godly design, is powerful no matter how it's applied. The Lord does not stop telling Gideon, don't be afraid. He shows him what to do with his fear. Somebody say, he shows him. What to, do. what to do? Verse 24. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is peace or shalom and right order. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abizarites. See, Gideon, like many other men, learned how to turn the tables on public enemy number one. He built an altar and offered up his fear to the intended recipient. He offered up his fear to the one who gave him the godly design. He built an altar that was a righteous one, one that was in the name of God, and he gave that fear over to the Lord. Our design is God-given, and none of it should be stifled. None of it should be put away or just told to be quiet. Instead, it must be offered under God as the holy instrument it was always intended to be. Amen. Verse 25. That same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on, top, on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. Verse 27. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. Now it's getting real. Gideon displayed the reality of how this process works. Gideon has realized his God-given design and has been, off, has been off mission. And he's getting it back on mission. Say amen. amen. So get your mezuzah back on mission, saints. Amen. Gideon knows, that he is, Gideon knows he's not supposed to fear. And yet fear is influencing and yet the fear of influences other than God are still with him. I can testify to that. The way we place our God-given fear into the Lord's hands is putting other fears to the test. Come on. Obey despite the fear and watch it not be the end of you, saints. Put the fear to the test and watch the fear of the Lord prove true time and time again. Build the altar of God and burn the idolatrous fear up as fuel for the fire. Can anybody empathize with obeying God and yet still having fear while you do it? See, you're going to find out as we continue to progress. The only way to truly conquer the fears that were preached on Sunday, the only way to conquer the adversaries that are still around you, 
is to begin to turn on it and taunt it. To do what is right anyway. When fear is speaking to you, the worst case scenario is going to happen. But you do it anyway and you see God proven true. See, David did the same thing in his re-consecration of his godly design. He built an altar and he burned his unconsecrated fear on that altar. We must identify the public enemy number one in our lives and the way that it manifests so that we can intentionally put our worst fears to the test of God's word. Burn your bridges. We're saying cut down your idols. Hem yourself in where you must operate in your godly design. Somebody say this with me. You ready? Get your mezuzah back on mission. It is holy, it is righteous, and it is good that we are afraid in the appropriate application of our design. In a certain way, getting this right is a little bit like mocking the fears that once mastered you. <laughs> you watch this, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm afraid and I'm still going to obey and you can't stop me. See, we're wanting to teach you what it is to invite a test. Invite a test where the truth of God is what you rely upon. You remember Psalm 21? Verses 1 through 7, the king was given great victories. It was not because he was strong. It was because he trusted and relied upon Yahweh's unfailing love. Amen. Amen. The application of fear is everything in our design because it belongs to the Lord and the Lord alone, saints. Saying don't be fearful alone without turning on what you once feared. Building an altar to God so that you can give your fear to him is ineffectual in producing the godly design. It's time to turn on the things that held you captive. It's time to put those misapplications of fear to the test and let them prove false while you offer up fear to the Lord your God alone and as your godly design was intended for. So look at verse 32 with us. Oh, so that day they called Gideon Jerob Baal, saying, let Baal contend with him. Because he broke down Baal's altar. Somebody say, bring it on. Bring it on. Gideon has reconsecrated his design. He was reborn as Jerob Baal. Because he has now put Baal to the test. The thing he once feared. He has stood with God as he was designed to. And he has been given a new name. He got his mezuzah back on mission, people. He was afraid in all of the right ways. And so he has been set free from fear. You know how? Because Baal had no hold on him. Fear of the past, fear of the present, fear of the future. Well, it has been uprooted and replaced with fear of him who was, is, and is to come. This is what the right application of your design will produce in you. Amen. So tonight, we raise an altar in the name of Jesus Christ, saints. Amen. We choose to turn on what once bound us and put it to the test. Amen. We choose to offer up our God-given fear to our maker and none other. You should remember that Ezra 3.3 says despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. I love morning and evening sacrifices, especially when it produces a pleasant aroma, fear being burned up and being placed rightly back in the lap of God. These men began to obey even though they were afraid, much like Gideon was. They put their fear to the test by doing what God had designed them to do right in front of the eyes of their enemies. They did it before their face. 
What do you need to learn to audaciously flaunt in the face of your previously misapplied and unconsecrated fear? See, those ancient enemies, they're only uprooted when we intentionally mock them. When we do what is right despite the fear. When we learn to operate in the God-given design. Who remembers 1 John 4:18 from Sunday? Anybody in this house? Yeah. It says there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. The beauty of the statement is easily missed. You already saw seven representative examples, plainly commanding that you must fear the Lord. The truth is that the Apostle John is elucidating here that when you give your fear to the Lord, he does so much more with it. Giving your fear to God as you were designed to frees you from fear of death. It frees you from the fear of difficulty and disgrace. What is more, God begins to consecrate you in his design. You're no longer afraid to pay the full price, but instead you begin to be driven by love for your maker. See, I think we need a greater appreciation, a greater love for the master designer in our own lives. Many of you will jump up and down and say, yes, that man of God was designed by God himself. You need to learn what it is to place your fear in the lap of God and be so driven by his transformative love that you understand he made you for this day and time. So, Lord, make us afraid. Yes. <laughs> make us afraid in the right application. In the name of Jesus, we turn now on our old fears and into the fear of the Lord. In the name of Jesus, we choose to pay the full price to live in our godly design. We have a slide for you that will be informative in the coming days. So 2 Samuel 23, 3-4, in this time, it says, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on the cloudless morning, like the rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. In the LXX, it reads, Among humanity, how might you strengthen the fear of the anointed, and by God at the rise at, at the light of the dawn, the sun will rise, which the Lord will not pass in the morning for, from splendor and like from rain on the grass from the earth. So, saints, a beautiful picture begins to emerge between these two manuscripts. When men both rule in the fear of God, as the Masoretic said it, and strengthen the fear of God among the anointed, as the LXX said it, then you can be certain that the Almighty shines on us like the rising sun. See, I don't know where you could use dawn. Actually, I do know. But many of us have sat in darkness and fear for far too long while in the light of Christ. We want to tell you tonight that he can shine on you. That you can see the rising sun. That that same hope that comes when men have been in desperation through the terrors of the night can come upon you when you learn to rule in the fear of God. When your aim, your goal, becomes to strengthen the fear of God among the anointed. What you may not know is that the list of mighty fighting men or mighty officers in David's army are just a few verses down in this very same chapter. Its relevance to our church's current aim cannot be detailed this evening. We must reconsecrate the godly design, including the placement of our fear. We must cause our trust to rise in the one who has made us for the task that is before us. He picked you, David Bonham, and he made you for it. 
We must raise a culture and a body of men who increase the fear of God in those who are anointed, in those that are around them, and fear in none other than the Almighty God. So in closing, we have three brief excerpts from the life of the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 1.1 says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. So Paul, called to be an apostle, he understood his godly design, saints. Check out 2 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Saints, did you catch the difference between the two? He said, I am called to be an apostle in his first letter. Does anybody empathize with that statement? And then Paul said in his second letter, Paul, an apostle. He's no longer saying I'm called to be this. He's saying I am what God has designed me to be. Oh, saints, there is a freedom in the godly design. There is a freedom, there is a confidence, there is a courage when you fear God and recognize he is the one who made you and you are fearfully and wonderfully made. See, the God-given design, when properly applied, saints, what it does is it sets you free. Paul's years of right application in his design, his years of his mezuzah on mission produced a powerful certainty in him. God fulfilled his purpose for Paul and he will for you too if you learn to trust him in his consecrated design. Amen. So our last excerpt is right in between the two passages we just read and right in between the growth you saw in Paul. It is a part of the growing revelation that produced that confidence in who God made him to be and who God's making you to be, saints. 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 10 says, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than them all. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So saints, God's called me to prepare his people for war. Amen. To set them in right order. To put them in divisions prepare them for battle. And I want to pay the full price to consecrate that calling in my life to ensure that I am actually doing the design God called me to do in a consecrated fashion, not in a way that's pleasing to me, that's easy, comfortable, or fearful, but the way that God made me to do it in fear of him. Before you stand to your feet, I want you to know that when you do, we are standing to turn, to turn on the things that have previously mastered us. We'll be standing to taunt the enemy, having placed our fear rightly in God's lap. To stand and operate in your godly design, not mourning the past. We're putting that enemy to death. Not fearing the present, not fearing the future. But I'd be amiss if in the five and a half minutes that I didn't point to a few things, I can feel the spirit hitting in the room. Sometimes when you prepare, you're honestly sharing everything that God has been hitting you with, and it's a bit like a shotgun blast. 
but you can tell when a few things hit their mark. See, some of the strongest leaders in this room, men that I'm very close with, I know you've been satiating your godly design through cheap, easy alternatives. For some of you, it's Netflix. For some of you, it's just looking a certain way in fellowship instead of, well, you actually practice in private. For some of you, you've been scared to death to be able to stand up and say, this is what I'm made to be. Because you know saying that will hold you accountable to actually living it. I say no more in this house. In this house, we will fight. We will fight with you. We will fight against you until we wake up and realize our godly design. Because we need men like Brett Phillips to stand up as the leaders that they're called to be. We need men like the Makowitz and Tom Powell and Eric Treister to stand up into who they are called to be. Because this house is going to accomplish the work that is set before it. Our individual callings make up the collective calling of this body. And I'm not going to war without all of my fingers. I'm not going to war without all of my toes. I'm not going to war with an arm that could be stronger. So I want the fist of God. You are his hands and feet. As we begin to stand, you can go ahead and do that with us. Brother Assad is going to pray for you. And I am asking you that if you have something to repent of, let's be real, you do. That you repent unto right action. Mourning the past has gotten us nowhere. Recognizing where we're going where we're leading our households, where we're leading our families, recognizing what God has already spoken to us and standing in it shoulder to shoulder, well, that is what will make the difference. Raise your hands. Mighty God, we thank you for this word, Lord. We thank you that you have given us a calling, a design, a purpose, individually as families and households and as a body, Lord Jesus. You've given us a mission. We thank you, Father, that you are giving us back on mission, Lord. You're putting our mezuzah back on mission, Father God. You're showing us how to rightly fear in this house, Lord Jesus. We taunt the enemy. We say, bring it on. Test us, Lord God. We say, test these things in us, Lord Jesus. And Father, we are standing up, Lord God. And we are laying these fears down on your altar tonight, Lord Jesus. You are the only one we fear, Lord God. Have your way in us in this place tonight. In Jesus' name we pray.